stop, pause, politics, COVID-19, quarantine, unemployment, death. Hi, this is No One Go. You're listening to Bichara Minguini and this week we have Ivy Quick from REFSA. So quick one, what does REFSA mean? Hi Norman, uh, REFSA stands for Research for Social Advancement. We are a progressive think tank and as our name suggested, we are trying to strive for social advancement through our research. Mm, I think I think uh, quite a number of people will know that uh, recently uh, one of the uh, directors, uh, Jin Tong, uh, Senator YB Lu Jin Tong is also one of the directors with, Ref, with REFSA, right? Mm-hmm. So um, one of the book was uh, it's called The Great Reset for Malaysia. So we'll come to that cut, that, that sort of question to, um, on that book later. Um, it's, it's a very interesting book. Uh, we'll discuss about resetting Malaysia and yes, this is not post-Malaysia. So don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, we are not hitting on party muda yet. <laughs> so both Ivy and I, to some of the listeners who have not uh, known, right? Both Ivy and I, both of us actually work with the previous administration under Pakatan Harapan. So it has been how many months since we left? So that was March. Yeah, we were no, jobless, right? <laughs> but, but hey, no, talking about it's joblessness, right? Talking about joblessness, you literally went back automatically straight back to uh, to work a month later. Yeah, pretty much. I actually asked for a two weeks break in between mm. my jobs, but uh, MCO happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some travel plans, but since MCO happened, I thought I might as well just start job. Lah. Mm. <laughs> So, so how are things since you left the administration? Back then, you were Special Functions Officer to Senator YB Lu Chintong. And now you are in WEFSA as the Research Director. Uh, how are things now for, for the time being? Um, it's quite a big change of pace in the sense that it's a very different uh, uh, organization set up. Uh, obviously, I think, as, as you would know, in the previous ministries, there is a, a lot of uh, procedures a lot of uh, sort of uh, processes, uh, which I really appreciate because being in there really helped me to uh, learn and appreciate the the challenges that the uh, bureaucrats and the policymakers have to go through to to get certain things done, and it's definitely a very good experience for me. Uh, but obviously now as a think tank, we are much more flexible in terms of the way we work. Uh, we are trying to also influence the public discourse through a different uh, uh, method, through our research, through our advocacy. So I would say that I really see it as uh, wearing different hats, but uh, essentially trying to do the same things, which is to help in uh, shaping the discourse of policy in the country. Well, you know, to those who don't follow, right, as a think tank, think tank can can also influence in terms of public policy. So, uh, although back then you were part of the government, where yeah. you can actually dictate the public, uh, dictate the policies within mm-hmm. the ministry. So, we will go in straight into politics here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we, before before we go into politics, right here, right. So, looking at what has happened to break up the national uh, administration since uh, them taking over. I don't care whether it's front door, back door, side door, legitimate, legitimate. Um, I know at the end of the day, it's still, the, it's still a government after the we're going to face anyway. How do you see things are going at the moment? You know, let's look at the poli- policies itself, policies uh, currently in managing COVID-19 pandemic and how do we fare in cushioning the impact of pandemic in Malaysia as a whole? I really see that... Uh, Malaysia is facing a triple crisis at the moment. Uh, We have the health crisis, obviously, uh, caused by the COVID pandemic. Um, We have the economic crisis that is brought uh, uh, 
by the the pandemic itself and at the same time as you well know we are also having a lot of political turmoil that is currently uh, still unfolding <laughs> in this country um, I would say that despite all these challenges uh, Malaysia has felt fed quite well and I think that a lot of these are kudos to uh, the professionalisms of the people in the civil service and also uh, really the people of Malaysia showing a lot of solidarity towards each other um, but obviously there's still a lot of challenge ahead of us uh, economy is not going to uh, get better anytime soon uh, a lot of people is uh, likely to lose their job or already have lost their jobs um, so there's definitely a lot of things for us to work on uh, while also sorting out our political issues and all that. And I think that as someone that is actually also uh, researching on international relations, it is quite important for us to remember that while there are so many things going on in the uh, domestic scenes, there are also a lot of things happening at the international scenes. And there are threats that Malaysia are facing that I think we shouldn't uh, lose sight on as well. Now, when you talk about the triple threat, this is a triple threat of her disaster but you know <laughs> regionally i mean malaysia looks really uh doing pretty well compared to the other neighboring countries um yes our are not um okay when i'm referring are not right here is referring to the spread of the covid19 pandemic and uh, we've been regarded as one of the best uh, among mm. the best countries in managing covid19 pandemic however i think we've been relegated because of um we close. I mean, because of political turmoils, and then that led to a spread of uh, further further spread of um, COVID nineteen uh, infection in the country, and mm. as well as the, you know, what we're seeing right now is reimposition of re the government is re reimposing CMCO, mm. and that has definitely affected a lot of businesses right now. So right now, um, even back home in my home state in in Kuching itself has been declared as a red zone. So emerging with more and more red zones. So now we would like to focus on the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. So any economic crisis that we had CMO uh, impose a sort of like a lockdown throughout the country. Um, and moratorium just ended last month. And many of many of our friends, young people, we have to start paying our credit loans this month onwards. Uh, what situation are we looking at? Um, I think that it will definitely not be an easy time for a lot of Malaysians. Mm. Uh, as you have said, the moratoriums actually, when it was in place, it has helped to ease a lot of the financial burdens uh, for people, especially those who have their, uh, either lose their job or have their uh, pay uh, had a pay cut. Uh, I personally have a lot of friends that are suffering from uh, pay cuts, and they're really struggling from. Uh, the, I mean, they, they're just so, so worried about having to pay their loans again next month. Um, so I, I think that that is also why uh, there have been calls for the moratorium to uh, actually be, uh, to be continued. Um, I, I think the, the sort of, um, the follow-on follow effect is that if people don't have uh, disposable income, uh, it obviously also uh, effect in their ability to consume mm. and that actually have sort of a further impact on our consumer markets. Looking at moratorium itself, like for example, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. If people don't pay up their loans and credits, right, banks will not have enough money to actually have a, what we call as a uh, fluid cash flow within the market. So I mean, people are not paying, uh, people are not buying, the purchasing power is going down, property market is, has been you know, badly affected as well. Uh, what's worse is the tourism industry. 
uh, travel industry. It's um, it's almost been a year, and I I think unfortunately Tourism Malaysia twenty twenty did not kick off at all. Unfortunately, it's very bad timing. It's very very bad timing. We've seen hotels close, people are losing jobs, retraining. I even I remember I, I was uh, involved in one other story, uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, it was published on China News Asia, where professionals had to relearn and retrain themselves. Um, it becomes even harder for those who are age fourteen in the senior mm. positions. Um, with this kind of workforce, workforce as well. But let's look at Malaysia. Even before MCO itself, Malaysia's workforce have been pretty much. Uh, we are very dependent on uh, foreign labor workforce, and um, and also unfortunately we're not attracting the right talents even for Malaysian talents as well as foreign talents coming into the country. Uh, for a more comp- competitive workforce, uh, how do you say about what do you say about that? I think the Malaysia economy has long been over reliant on cheap labor that is provided by the migrant workers. Uh, it is a structural uh, uh, error that we never bothered to actually correct. Um, but as as the pandemic has showed us, uh, these are some of the systemic uh, uh, vulnerabilities that we face. And uh, because of the because of the cheap labor that we got, our industries never actually have the motivation to uh, go up the value chain. Uh, we do not uh, transform. We do not uh, uh, digitalize as fast as we should. Um, and in a way, I feel that this pandemic would be a very good opportunity for us to uh, correct some of these mistakes and I really like the word uh, build back better because as uh, we are trying to overcome this pandemic uh, we need to be sure that uh, we do not reinforce the mistake that we've done in the past but we're actually trying to address some of these issues uh, such as as you pointed out uh, the reliance on cheap labor Uh, I mean one of the greatest way for us to create jobs now is actually you know, really start to uh, create more jobs for uh, Malaysians that can pay, pay uh, decently. And uh, I think that is a myth that Malaysians are, you know, not willing to take up these 3D jobs because I feel that with uh, proper automations with and with uh, a decent wage, a lot of Malaysians are actually willing to uh, take up these jobs. You know, looking at it, right, um, creating jobs cannot be created out of thin air. And the, the whole economic structure, the government policies, how attractive to um, startups, for example. And then, of course, uh, Malaysia's workforce is powered up by mostly by SMEs. 90% of the jobs offered here in Malaysia by the small medium entre- um, uh, enterprises. Unfortunately, um, our, our economy is pretty much still very reliant on commodities like palm oil, mm. um, rubber, and all that. And do you think Malaysia has, is, is turning into a less competitive ground um, compared to other um, countries like Vietnam? It's also, Vietnam is now looking like Malaysia in the 80s. And what's interesting is that I remember mentioning this to Jalil. Jalil, uh, you know, we're looking at the... Uh, the uh, investments, uh, foreign direct investments of the fintech. Um, on the fintech itself, 30, I think about 30 plus percent of the, all these investments are in Vietnam, while 51% is in Singapore. Now, 
Malaysia itself is, you know, we, we are slowing down. Do you think, are we slowing down in this kind of area? Um, I mean, creating jobs would be, you know, people say, yeah, government can help with creating jobs. But there's our economy and the and environment itself is suitable to to use this opportunity, a window of opportunity as a catalyst of digitalization. I, I mean, I, I'm sure you heard this before that a lot of people say that uh, Malaysia is in a middle income trap mm. because uh, obviously we cannot compete with countries like Vietnam when it comes to uh, uh, sort of low, lab, low uh, labor. labor cost. Mm. Uh, so we really need to think about how do we uh, position ourselves uh, and also in terms of uh, how do we create a niche area for, for ourselves. So when you look at it, right, after reopening our economy post-MCO, and now we're back in CMCO again, uh, mm-hmm. although there were a lot more, fewer restrictions and all that, our unemployment rate remains at 4.7%, while labor market in Malaysia continue to expand. So what do you say about that and how things will look like in this uh, fourth quarter until the end of the year? Are the current policies by Perikatan National effective in addressing unemployment? Mm-hmm. And yes, especially youth. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think the the statistics showed by the Department of Statistics is definitely very worrying. I believe it's like 740,000 people have mm. lost their job. Um, I, I, I think that uh, in this crisis, the most important first thing that the government should do is actually to help uh, private sector to retain job, job retentions. Uh, because you know, as long as people have jobs, they are still pretty much manageable. Uh, and I think this is when uh, the schemes like the wage subsidy schemes would uh, be very, very uh, useful. Uh, the government is doing that, uh, but from, from what I heard, it is not quite enough because they are only providing 600 per employee for mm. uh, a maximum of 200 employees. And I think a lot of industries are really struggling to keep their workers even with this uh, wage subsidy programs but most of these are pretty much one off kind of thing and it will only last for a very short time that's right Um, if you compare our our approach with Singapore Mm -hmm. um, do you think that we could actually adopt Singapore's approach um, where they actually support in the longer term um, longer longer period of time compared to a one off kind of uh, wage subsidy scheme What, what do you think about that yeah, definitely. I think that the assistance will need to be longer and I believe they have extended it until the mm. end of the year. Uh, but I think it will still be quite optimistic to think that uh, things will get better yeah. next year. Correct. So so, so if, if I may just ask, mm. at, uh, so I think apart from job de- retention, uh, unemployment benefits will also be very important. So at the moment, we have the EIS mm. uh, by SOXO. Uh, but one very distinct uh, shortcoming is that it does not include informal workers. So it does not include people that are doing gig jobs and all that. I think not just gig jobs. Uh, there are a lot of Malaysians out there who rely on daily wage. Yeah, and uh, gig, jo- yeah, gig jobs includes those even um, grab drivers. Mm-hmm. You know, are they being covered? Uh, what about those on uh, contract base? You know, they don't. They they're working on their own. Their contract base. Um, do they have a social security policy in hand? Yeah. Uh, what about any support in terms of employment and and things like that? You know, um, these are part where we don't really discuss much, especially when it comes to uh, policy making. So we don't look really look at this sector. 
It's always like, okay, complaints by QPAX, not enough bonus, this, right? <laughs> Every year in year, we hear about the same thing from QPAX, right? Yeah. But those who are really suffering are those who are, you know, they're based on salaries and based on guys pagi makan pagi lah. Mm. Yeah. thing. So, looking ahead, now we're shifting into next week, on Thursday, November 6th, the government will be tabling budget for 2021. What can you expect? I... Uh, so from what I've read so far, the government seems to have uh, a decent plan. So I think the three themes that they said they would be uh, focusing on is the is uh, economic resilience, uh, business continuity, as well as uh, the rakyat's prosperity. So I would say that if, if that's really where they are going towards, uh, that would be sort of in the right track. I definitely would love to. I definitely would love to see. Uh, the government spending more in the right sector uh, and also in strengthening the social safety net. So these are things that we talked about just now about uh, the unemployment benefits, social security and also uh, in retaining jobs. Um, but apart from that, I think it's also important that the government actually play a more active role as an economic driver to uh, create more jobs. So whether this is a temporary jobs or uh, or permanent jobs, I think that that is uh, secondary. But at least we need some uh, quick wins uh, where there are jobs that people can actually take part in. And one of the things that uh, my, my, my team in Repsa we have been doing is actually to encourage the government to actually invest in uh, sectors that can bring common goods. So things that uh, like healthcare, educations, I think that there's a, a, lot, a great demand for healthcare now for obvious reason, uh, education as well because we will need more teaching assistants uh, in sort of a education teaching in the new normal. Mm. Uh, so and obviously there are also people that have lost job that would be looking for uh, reskilling and upskilling. So there will be people in the in the uh, middle of their careers that are looking for these educational opportunities. So if these are some of the sectors that a government can put more money in and at the same time create more jobs for uh, either teaching jobs or a sort of a medical person assistant kind of jobs. Uh, this would be opportunities for Malaysians. I remember last year during Pakatan Harapan's um, government, uh, they, they announced a policy called Malaysians at Work. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things is uh, women at work. Uh, unfortunately, due to the change of government uh, from the Sheraton move in, in late February, we've not seen this policy in place. And the UN report has also shown us, even the World Bank report has also shown us that by putting more women into the workforce, as women now, you know, I mean, my perception is that there are more and more women as breadwinners in the, in the family. So, looking at the budget, budget 2021 itself, um, and also this government, are we putting in more women back to work? Are we allowing more women back to work? I mean, if I take for example, there are a lot of women out there who sacrifice their time, even, you know, take away from, leave from job to raise the kids. And then, yeah. you know, they find it hard to return to work. And again, our culture, our, culture, our society, and most of the businesses here, and they're very, um, again, very patronage kind of thing. And, and most of the decision makers are, are men. That's one of the major problems and people don't see the incentive of hiring women. But that's that's sort of, you know, I would say that's sort of very lopsided, um, sexist 
um, I try in all the words, sexist <laughs> lah, what lah. But the thing is, women Patriarchal. can multitask. Yes, <laughs> women can actually multitask better. And a lot in a lot of countries, right, where then encourage more women to go back to work, productivity of the company, and then the outcome of that, right, is a lot better. And how does it actually impact? The market and the economy, not just a uh, um, a micro economy of a certain community itself, but as a whole in the country, where uh, women are more prudent in spending. In spending, hmm. yeah. Of course, we will say, oh, women are actually going to online shopping. Not necessarily. <laughs> it gets the money flow. Okay, buy buy local products. But when you look Stimulate at it, the economy. <laughs> it's stimulating the economy. It means. Stimulating the economy means, in a way, that it helps other businesses to grow. So um, there's cash flow and all that. But do you see that happening in this um, this new government in uh, promoting more women going back to work? Um, I I think there's a lot of great work that's being done by uh, the women NGO like WAO in mm. sort of uh, putting forward some some policies that can help women. I personally don't uh, really. Uh, really uh, deal with it at a very deep level mm. but I think that uh, whether we like it or not uh, women uh, is in the workforce and I think the crisis will actually uh, encourage or force more women to actually be a breadwinner as well because uh, uh, the household income might have uh, reduced and you might need more than one uh, person uh, bringing home the money uh, and at the same time I think that you know more people are working from home and there's a lot more pressures of a childcare mm. uh, in the household and unfortunately I think that women still shoulder uh, a bigger share of the burden compared to men sorry to interject do you know that to, <laughs> to all the listeners out there if you're following right childcare is very very expensive even in nurseries very very expensive and that's why a lot of parents do think that they just want to raise their own kids at home. But then there's no opportunity for a lot of businesses to allow women to work from home. So now, businesses have no reasons not to, right? Yeah. So in a way, maybe there's a silver lining because, you know. Mm. But we have, to check, we have to check on all these companies. If they don't allow them, we have to call them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. No, this this kind of situation where you know, um, we we got to have more, more, more and more women, um, back to work. Um, at the end of the day, we just need to allow more people to go back to work, and businesses will start running. And now, from the budget, we have seen what happened. Now we go to the spicy part of it politics. <laughs> so from Sabah election to the numbers game in pursuit for power in Putrajaya. So how do you feel the current dynamics of politics in Malaysia? Oh, God. Um, I'm sure that I'm not the only person that will feel frustrated about mm. this whole process because um, I think there's a sense of helplessness as a Malaysians. It's mm. as if like we can't really do anything about it and it's being dictated by uh, certain personalities uh, in, the, in the sort of uh, power, power play. Uh, but I, 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 I always believe that uh, politics should be about uh, uplifting the well-being of the people. And uh, by to do that, we need to talk about policies. Um, so I, I think that we need to come back to the essential business of politics, which is to make good policies and uh, make uh, lives of the people better. So uh, yes, I know that it's very frustrating 
uh, for a lot of us out there. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it is definitely very crucial for us to keep remembering that we are the one that will keep them in check. We're the one that will keep them accountable. And we need to constantly bring the politicians back to remembering that that's what they are for in the first place. Yeah, and then like uh, if if some of you have followed, um, consider this on Awani last night, um, Sharad and Melissa Idris, they were talking about, you know, our, our parliament is just full of geriatrics. <laughs> but I think it's just more than that. It's not just geriatrics. I think the politics itself is just, you know, men, all men, bitter all men, Quarreling for power. <laughs> it's just power, 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 position, power. And then the same people again, they fight again for more than two, three decades, right? I said, like, oh gosh. <laughs> now, can, we, can we just tell everyone, can we finally have a, f- a, a, a female prime minister who's a millennial? No, right. Right. <laughs> you know, stop talking about having a Jacinta Ardern. Can we start putting our own people in the parliament? So, I remember you want to talk about, you know, uh, before we got about the change in the regional powers, you know, they, despite the uh, advice from the young Panagong and all that, so will we be able to break the political impasse? Or is it going to be a continuous vicious cycle of playing musical chair like Game of Thrones? Mm. I think that democracy is always messy and it's not a straightforward process. And noisy. Yeah, and noisy. <laughs> mm. uh, and confusing. Mm. Um, but... I think that we need to insist that whoever that is in power at the moment need to put in some institutional reforms that will last and that will withstand political changes. And I think that is essentially what mature democracy is. Um, you know, like in the past few weeks, we have been uh, uh, discussing about who is the legitimate government and whatnot. Um, but I, f- I feel that we need to go beyond that. And we need to go talk about how what kind of parliament that we want. Uh, is there a space for co-governing between the oppositions and the government? Uh, I think that one thing that uh, we, we are really, really weak of is actually our parliament. And I know that in the past few years, there are some lawmakers that are trying to put in some reforms, but unfortunately, it's still not really happening fast enough. Um, but things like having parliamentary select committee that can actually scrutinize uh, the bills in details and not just, you know, the very superficial level of uh, just... Uh, Being a rubber stamp. But rubber stamp mm. and just A and nays according to your party lines. But actually being able to look at the details, uh, propose some changes. The proposal can come from backbenchers or oppositions. Uh, things like um, making uh, certain important appointments uh, have to go through the parliament confirmations. Uh, so things like that would actually strengthen our parliamentary institution and in a way it's giving back the power to people and it's a way to actually check the power of the whoever that is the government of the day. How I wish to have these uh, parliamentary select committee meetings or hearings uh, to be live on Facebook, to be yeah. live on YouTube, something like you know we've seen in the States when you have the House of Representatives and Senate uh, confirmation hearings. They have it live on TV and we don't do it. There's a lot of bits of hush-hush, we don't know what's talking about and and there's no accountability in how we appoint this. Um, I will throw this question because both of us have actually been in the last administration anyway. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to throw this question. Do you think that no matter what, both sides has no political will to institute reforms 
in in the country. Um, I'm trying to put both on on the on the pedestal now because it seems like during PH time, of course, it's it's really unfair to say that 22 months they did not institute reforms. They tried, but in certain things they should have done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I think the past administration did try, um, but unfortunately, I think that they were kind of distracted as well by other other things and mm. uh, external factors or political factors, mm. politicals. Mm. Um, yeah, a lot of racial sentiment being played up as well. And uh, uh, people are very sensitive because we just tend to racialize a lot of uh, issues. Uh, this is very unfortunate, but I think that is, we just have to recognize that this is where our society is. Mm. Uh, we definitely have to work uh, on, on this when it comes to, especially on racial relations. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel that change is not. Uh, change is not straightforward and it's not immediate. So. Yeah, when you talk about change, I remember paying for my parking at BSC that day. So <laughs> I put in money and says is- change is possible. Yeah, that's like the most encouraging uh, slot uh, park- parking <laughs> auto pay machine ever. Yes, you know, change is possible. But then again, right, when you look at it, um, when we look at regional changes right now, we've seen what happened in Hong Kong. Yeah. What happened in Hong Kong, right? To me, we should be encouraged by it. You know, it all happened with just 14-year-old kid, Joshua yeah. Wong, with Demo Sisto, as a student student who who really, you know, got out to the streets. Of course, here we say, hey, why you want kids going, don't go to school, and then you go out to the streets and start protesting the government. No, democracy is what people really, really fought. You know, people really fight for democracy. Um, say, oh, democracy is not working lah. I might as well become a, a, a communist country like uh, China. Everything works so fine. I said, no, not exactly. Uh, why Malaysia is formed? I think people really need to think back again. Malaysia, the Federation of Malaysia was formed on the basis of people actually died fighting for democracy. Now, with the growing dissatisfaction of, by people towards the government, well, we've seen that happening in Bangkok, Jakarta, now still ongoing in Hong Kong. What is your reading of how this situation affecting Malaysia? How these dynamics are, are, are going on in this region? Mm, I think that I think that uh, we Malaysians I, I think that Malaysians have actually uh, showed that we can uh, be united before. Uh, I, I'm sure you were part of a protest like Bursay and all that. So it is not as if like Malaysians are incapable of that. Uh, I mean, looking at what happened around the region, I think you're right. I mean, uh, when when the people are actually angered enough and they are motivated enough to actually come out to the streets to risk everything they have, uh, it means that uh, something is very wrong and people cannot take it anymore. Uh, in Malaysia, I feel that maybe that that sentiment hasn't reached that boiling point yet at mm-hmm. the moment but it's not to say that we have not done it before uh, and i would also say that in fact if, if you look at the, the just just the last few months during the pandemic um, there are a lot of uh, voices pressures that were uh, ha- that happened in uh, twitter for example which i i sort of take it as the 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 playground of a lot of Malaysian young young Malaysians and you see that a lot of the 
the grouses that have actually been picked up by the government. So I think that there was like a lot of issues about how the universities were closed at a very short notice and a mm-hmm. lot of people were uh, making noise about it. And then I think the government responded and made some changes to the rules. Um, so things like that. So I feel that these are um, actually evidence that uh, collective actions actually can bear fruit. Um, but I guess the the issue is how do we bring this uh, offline to actually do something more more uh, engaging at the community level. But wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be more uh, negatively impacting and how policy making is, is being uh, in the process of policy making in that way because that would just be a more reactionary kind of policy making. To me, in my opinion, yeah. that has lack of concrete substance itself. It means when people react, then you change the policy. And if another person reacts, then you just fall back to the to the old policies again. Uh, this has becoming a, um, in my opinion, it, it becomes a very weak, um, um, doesn't have the strong pillar of how policy making is in the country. Um, now, looking at this, right, how do we learn from what's going on around us from our neighbors in resetting Malaysia? Hmm. That's the crux of the question. Not from a book. Not written by Jin Tong, <laughs> but I want to hear from Ivy. <laughs> That's a very good question. Hmm. I mean, I feel like 2020 is a really a year of reflection for at least for me at the personal level. Hmm. Uh, you just want to reset 2020 all over again. Right? <laughs> restart 2020. Yeah, like erase it maybe. But I think that when we say reset, we also mean that uh, the, old, the old ways of doing things uh, no longer works. Mm. And that applies for uh, how we have uh, been operating our economy. Uh, you know, we know that we cannot leave it to the market anymore. We know that the government needs to step in uh, and play a much more uh, constructive role in uh, creating jobs and making sure that uh, people's well-being are uh, taken care of, that there will not be inequality. Um, I mean, that's another thing that uh, very likely to happen is that inequality might increase after this crisis because people are unevenly uh, affected. and this also applies to our politics, you know, we are so used to this old politics of uh, personality and patronage uh, and we need to do something about that. So, so to me, that is, uh, that is what Reset is all about and uh, this is what uh, we, we need to talk about what kind of Malaysia we want after the pandemic. Mm. And we are not. We shouldn't just be talking about going back to how things were, but really taking this opportunity to uh, build back better. Uh, so I think that we also mentioned just now about education and healthcare needing an extra boost. Uh, the other thing that we didn't talk about was also uh, in the in the sector of green green economy, sustainable you know, development goals, sustainable SDG. development mm. goals. You know, like we shouldn't forget all these things because you know. As much as COVID is the real the the immediate threat right now, mm-hmm. we have a climate change that is also going to be something that we have to deal with in the past. So, so that to me would be what I want to see uh, as we as as we as we are trying to uh, get out of uh, the crisis. 
Yeah, there you hear it uh, from Ivy talking about resetting Malaysia, sometimes rebooting our mindset in uh, building the whole country. And so I remember when when I was in US for the ACYPO program where Ivy was also part of ACYPO. See, both of us in, you know. There's so much similarities. Yeah, but given the kind of experiences when we were we were in the ACYPO program in, in the States, I was there during midterms. Mm. And I was amazed to see 14-year-olds they can't vote yet, yes. but what they do, what they did, I saw them in Boston was that they go out and tell those voters, "Is that you are voting on behalf of our future," mm-hmm. and they are mm-hmm. trying to persuade them to vote. You know, this kind of thing, the participatory democracy, yeah. is not what we are experiencing here in Malaysia. Not that much, but we are seeing some uptick. Yeah, we are. We, we are, are getting better. We're getting there. I mean, yeah. stop talking bad about Pati Muda. We should be encouraging <laughs> more. Not just Pati Muda. I mean, all young people should participate as, you know, strive to be a policymaker. You can be an NGO. You can be a lobbyist. Yeah. But more importantly, the same goal is to see Malaysia as a better country than anyone else. But of course, we're not going to make Malaysia great again. Malaysia itself <laughs> is really great. So it's how you improve on it. So on that note, right, that where IV share with us here is that you got to remember resetting Malaysia is not going back to the always. Resetting Malaysia is reimagining what Malaysia is in future. Or what can be. Can be, exactly. So that's the end of our interview today. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And um, while we're waiting for the budget tabling next week, I think political um, drama, the Game of Thrones will still be going on. I think this afternoon we have another meeting with Pakatan Harapan Presidential Council is going on this afternoon. If you're listening, it might be tomorrow. But yeah. <laughs> so you're listening to Bicharamingo Ini Uncovering Current Affairs and Politics And you can listen to the stories and interviews On Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts And Apple Podcasts on iTunes For more updates and stories If you have any suggestions You can tweet to me at I'm not go. If you want to follow Ivy Ivy, what's your Twitter handle? Um, it's Kwekai K-W-E-K-I-I-I Mm. So if you have any questions uh, You can ask about Refsa If you have any int- any uh, interest about uh, Probably joining Refsa Or work together at Refsa And you can always contact Ivy Thank you for listening <laughs>